The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we are back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but we got a really amazing show lined up for everyone tonight. My guest tonight is uh, Walter Bosley. We're going to be talking about his book, Shimmering Light. It's a fascinating, fascinating book. It covers a lot of ground. I think that if you're familiar with the Roswell crash, this will definitely put a lot of the pieces in place. Right on the book cover, you already know what you're going to be in for. It's a story about paperclip Nazis, Roswell, UFOs, a lost race, and perception management. So definitely buckle up for this one. It's going to be a wild ride. This is the third book by Walter that I've had the pleasure of reading. The first one I read of his was Origin, the 19th Century Emergence of the 20th Century Breakaway Civilization. And the second book is titled Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom, which is an exploration on the underlying esoteric themes of Disneyland, the Disneyland Park here in Southern California. Walter is one of my favorite authors and researchers, and uh, I can't wait to get into this book with him. We've had the opportunity to interview Walter previously on the two uh, books I just mentioned. So definitely go and check that out if you haven't. I'm going to read a little bit of Walter's bio. Walter Bosley is a popular conspiracy author, meticulous researcher, and ex-special agent of various government-related organizations. Specifically, he spent 19 years in national security, having been employed by the FBI, and the U.S. Air Force, where he also served as a special agent of the AFOSI, that's the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. He's also worked as a counterterrorism operational consultant for six years following his military service. He is an avid investigator of historical occult mysteries, publishing not only nonfiction works, but also authoring multiple pulp fiction novels. He's also been known to weave his research knowledge and past experiences into screenplays and has himself made a couple of screen appearances, namely in the 2013 documentary Mirage Man and on History Channel's Ancient Aliens. So without further ado, let's welcome Walter Bosley to West of the Rockies. Walter, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I really appreciate you uh, being on the show. This is the third book I read from you. And honestly, it did not disappoint. It literally covered every aspect of some of these mysteries that I'm really fascinated with. In the back cover, you ask the reader a question. Have we ever been alone? And mm -hmm. it would seem that the answer to that question, as we're going to see here in a minute, the answer is not out in space. It seems like the answer lies closer to home. and 
oddly enough, right under our feet. And I know if that sounds weird to the folks listening at home, just hang tight because uh, this is going to get interesting. Your book deals in part with the Roswell crash. We are here in July 2021, uh, 74 years after the fact. And I know it's a story that everybody's familiar with, but in a nutshell, what happened on July 1947 uh, outside of Roswell? Well, uh, popularly, we are told and have been told that um, some craft crashed and uh, the debris and bodies of alleged extraterrestrials were found. And this was taken to Wright-Patterson where it was hidden away from us. And it has been a big secret that the U.S. military, the U.S. government has kept for decades. When you look more closely at the details of what was reported, um, it, it's, it's a bit less than that. And, you know, we've been left with wondering, okay, how much of the conjecture is true? Um, how much is not? You know, what really happened? What could have happened if there indeed was a crash? And uh, that's the question I ask. What, what else could have happened that would have maybe given someone the impression that there was an extraterrestrial craft that crashed? What could have happened that would cause the level of secrecy that has been apparently applied to this legendary uh, incident at Roswell in 1947. Now, in the book, you introduce us to your father, uh, Charles Bosley, uh, who served in the U.S. Air Force. And over the years, he seemed to have hinted at another Roswell-type event. And with the passage of time, you started kind of putting these pieces together. Can you tell us what was that story? Yes, he was in the Air Force um, in the second half of the 1950s. And starting around 1974 is when he started uh, initially telling my sisters and I, and, and then in subsequent years, it was just pretty much he and I talking about it. But in 74, he, he, you know, we always had books about UFOs around the house. We had those famous um, you know, life and look magazines with the UFO articles that you see and hear about. You can see those online. We, we had those, you know, original copies around the house because he was always interested in those subjects. So the subject came up and that was when I first heard him tell the story of uh, when he was in the Air Force in the, in the late 50s. He was uh, back east, specifically in the southeast in Alabama for some training. And he and the couple of the guys he was training with were instructed that they had to go to, um, I, I think it was, it was either Kelly or Randolph Air Force Base, and both are in Texas. So they get on the plane, they leave Gunner Air Force Base in Alabama, and they're, they, they're on their way to Texas. However, uh, somewhere over Mississippi, somewhere in Mississippi, the, the plane, you know, banks north, and uh, out of the forward cabin of the aircraft, an intelligence officer comes out and informs them that they're not going to Texas, but they're actually going to Wright-Patterson in Ohio. And when they uh, get there, according to my dad's story, they're told about something that happened that crashed in 1947. Now, remember, my dad is telling us this, uh, what, like six years before 
the book, The Roswell Incident, comes out, and this really hits the public in a big way. I mean, I know Stanton Friedman and a couple of others were already looking into the issue during the 70s, but it really didn't hit the public in a big way till that book in 1980. So, you know, he, he's saying that they're told about something that crashed in Roswell, or in New Mexico is how he put it, um, in, in 1947. And then they were told, according to my dad, that it had happened again, and they were being assigned to a, essentially a rescue operation. But this time, the crash had occurred, and the pilot, you know, or occupant or crewman or whatever, was allegedly still alive. And th- that uh, it, it gets more interesting. The, the people from whom this craft came from uh, requested help in bringing their crewmen back. So they are flown to Arizona. He said that, now this is 1958 when this allegedly happened, and uh, he says they're flown to Arizona somewhere east of Winslow, was how he put it. There, they were part of this rescue operation, and they're apparently, you know, there's a cavern system there, and they were in the caverns, and he and another individual encountered people, human beings, but people that had been living in this subterranean cavern world. For a long time, a very long time, they had gone underneath um, when there was some type of surface cataclysm. The kinds of things that you commonly hear, right, in our our community and mm-hmm. in religious community, um, things that are kind of popular, some people would say tropes or whatever. And he claimed that they were told that this craft had come from a civilization that shares this planet with us. And they primarily are, you know, subterranean. They're under the surface. They're, they're in the, these vast areas um, under the surface of the earth that are habitable, okay? And that they, they're human beings, but they, their civilization advanced and developed separate from ours and that they allegedly want nothing to do with us, but they, they needed our help and, and on and so forth. And, and this was the story. And my dad told this story over, you know, the course of, you know, almost 40 years. And uh, I have no doubt, never had any doubt that, you know, he was, he was absolutely telling something that, you know, he had, had experienced or at least believed he had experienced. And finally, after he passed away in 2008, you know, some years after that, I decided, you know what, I really need to dig into this story more. I, I, I really need to investigate, you know, my, my dad's crazy, wild story and, um, you know, see what I find. And, and that, of course, resulted in the book Shimmering Light. And, you know, I attempted to do an objective, honest investigation in which not only do I present my dad's story as he told it, as he firmly believed it was true, but I also found evidence, um, you know, that compelled me to present the possibility that something he was involved with was deeply classified and that the story he told may have been kind of a false narrative overlaid in his psyche uh, through hypnosis to suppress what he really worked on. And this is all, this, this suggestion is all based on actual psychiatric technology and, and methodology that had been developed under the MK Ultra program. And I learned all sorts of interesting truths about how the Air Force was really keen on MK Ultra during the time my dad was in and, and 
looking at it from that angle opened my eyes to things that I had I, I didn't realize um, were connected with the period of time my dad was in the context of, of you know his story and such um, and yet and yet even though that whole possibility would seem to explain away this story of underground people and this hidden you know civilization and stuff even though the psychiatric part would possibly explain all that away in my own research on other things there is a thread of evidence to suggest that there really has been this other group of people if not a full-blown civilization this other group of people coexisting with us on the planet and as you know in the book you know in the end i can tell you reasonably that my dad may very well have been exposed to mk ultra techniques and why i present all the actual documented histories to why that's possible um and i I can also offer an alternative to the ET hypothesis, a legitimate alternative to the ET hypothesis where Roswell is concerned based on the actual history and the context of the history going on. And yet with both of those, I still end up not being able to say there aren't these other people. And that's the wild thing about my experience in writing that book is, you know, I might be able to explain away my dad's, strange story but then again can i and it's indicative of <laughs> just some of the weirdness that i have just constantly found when researching this stuff that i've been writing about reading your book made me i know it sounds silly to say especially doing a show of this nature but sometimes we hear the same thing over and over to where it, it almost becomes like a a fact of sorts within our circles and yeah. this book really challenges a lot of the ideas that a lot of people almost take as fact. You know, for a lot of people, Roswell was an alien craft. They crashed and we uh, retrieved technology from that. However, you put forth four possibilities of who it could have been that crashed outside of Roswell. And it's funny because none of those four are necessarily extraterrestrial. And mm -hmm. if we could, I would like to just go through these four possibilities with you and give us a little bit about each one as we go, because I found this really fascinating. I'll name the four first. So number one, it could have been an early U.S. attempt at manned space flight. Now, this is, remember, 1947, way mm -hmm. before NASA, um, shortly after World War II. Mentioning World War II, your second possibility is that it could have been a post-war uh, Nazi technology project, mm -hmm. which if for anybody that has yeah researched uh, this topic, it's totally a possibility, and we'll see why in a minute. Option number three, and you mentioned it uh, earlier as you were telling us your dad's story. A group separate from publicly known civilization, inclusive of a breakaway option, but not necessarily so. And I know you've talked about breakaway civilizations before, but in this book, you uh, present a possibility that it's just uh, really mind, I would say mind-blowing, but also it's a, a bit mind-expanding. 
because like I said, it, it, your book really reminded me what a strange place the world can be. <laughs> now, the last option the, 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 that you put um, in your book is that it was a U.S. experiment with exotic technology originally captured from the Germans um, and expanded upon by a Project Paperclip scientist. And for the folks at home that uh, maybe uh, Project Paperclip rings a bell, this is the uh, name of the uh, operation used to bring uh, German Nazi scientists into the U.S. And uh, they were quickly put to work in various uh, uh, top-secret projects. Now, let's go through these four scenarios and see why you narrowed in into these four possibilities. And one of the possibilities that you put forth is related to the story that your father shared with you, uh, that it, it's a separate civilization uh, that lives underground, and right. they had a Roswell-type incident occur. There is a name that comes up in your book, and I, I apologize if I... <laughs> mispronounce it, but is the Tuatha de Danan? The, the Tuatha de Danan. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's, that's where I, I admit it, it, it does get kind of weird. Um, when you go back to the work of Jacques Vallée in the 80s, he mentions them. And uh, this is one of the, the sources of the idea of ultra-terrestrials in in ufology, <clears throat> the idea that there is somebody other than extraterrestrials um, to explain the unexplainable, otherwise unexplainable UFOs. And uh, <clears throat> Valet himself was seeing um, uh, uh, signs in circumstantial evidence of, um, I wish they'd come up with another term, but of the fairy lore. And what I mean by that is for centuries, you know, <clears throat> human culture has had these beings that uh, they, they refer to as, um, you know, the fairy people, the, the, these interdimensional beings that uh, coexist in this world with us. And the Tuatha Dé Danann are uh, famously in Celtic lore um, <clears throat> representative of this. Okay. But originally... Uh, there is an anthropological explanation for them that a lot of people like to rely on, just fall back on. But when you go to the original arrival of these beings, the Tuatha Dé Danann, they come out of the sky and they land on a mountain in Ireland, ancient Ireland, and with great clouds and fury and stuff. Which, what does that sound like? It looks like sounds like they're coming out of the sky from space in some type of you know craft. And um, they're technologically advanced. They initially are met with resistance, but they kind of squash that resistance. And then they immediately kind of befriend, you know, the ancient Irish folks that they encountered that didn't know who they were, didn't know how to take them. And, and um, anyway, they're all tied in with this idea of um, developing um, human society and civilization technologically and such. And this um, really resonates with the theme of um, like uh, Quetzalcoatl and uh, Viracocha, you know, and, and these, this culture that would show up in ancient human civilizations and teach them advanced agriculture, teach them, you know, military technology, teach them astronomy and, and stuff like that, right? And, and uh, cultures around the world have stories of this, 
Um, what's interesting is one scholar has pointed out that at the time that the two of Eden uh, depart from Ireland, a very similar group with very similar activity appears in Latin America. Okay, Central America and Latin America. And then when they disappear from there, uh, they reappear back in, you know, the Celtic lands and such. So it looks like this group, which might have originally come from space, comes here and goes around the world bringing uh, humanity up to um, a higher level of civilization and technology and, and intelligence. And there's nothing that says they ever actually left. And there's all sorts of interesting lore around the world to suggest that, uh, you know, they're still with us and that they might be the ones who show up at certain times, who, who show up in these mysterious um, uh, craft and make their presence known and possibly have left their presence in the, the, the mysterious megaliths and, and such and other clues to a lost civilization. They, they could be the ones who helped um, uh, humankind develop uh, these levels, these higher levels of uh, technology and such. And the idea is that they're still with us. Now, when you go back to the Celtic lore, uh, in those stories, it talks about how another group came along and, and defeated them. I think when you get into that, you're getting into the murkiness of the anthropological stuff, because not long after arriving, the two of they would befriend and, and make allies, the earthly human tribes that they encountered. And those cultures would then kind of um, come together under the banner of the two of And I think when you hear about the battles and the defeat of the two of I think you're referring to these, um, these uh, tribal allies of them, not the actual two because the earliest descriptions of the Tuata, their technology and their understanding would have been way beyond any other earthly culture that would have attempted to make war on them. So part of this, though, part of this alleged defeat is that the Tuata literally went underground, that they went into the earth. Now, I think you take out the anthropological part of the, the, the human tribal allies, cultural allies of the Tuata, they were the ones who were probably pretty much defeated by other tribes, but it, it's possible that the part about the Tuata going underground um, is the otherworldly Tuata. And what would that suggest? That could mean, this is all hypothetical, what it could mean is that they're the ones who knew, discovered, and you know, found and, and um, established themselves in habitable regions either under the surface of the earth or, or possibly even, you know, under the, the seas, because we have the whole issue of things coming up out of the ocean for, for ages. Remember, we're talking about a civilization technologically advanced, you know? And um, so if there are these habitable zones, not like a traditional popular version of the hollow earth, like you see in movies and, and stuff, but, you know, let's say there's a nugget of truth. I'm a great believer in the nugget of truth way of looking at things. We hear stories about a hollow earth, right? Um, it, it could be that the truth is that there are vast um, uh, hollow spots, hollow places um, under the surface, you know, the outer surface of the planet that are habitable. And this is theoretically where these Tuata 
you know, would have set up and, um, you know, come you know, they can come and go as they please, but there they are, they're down there. And, and it, it's possible that according to, you know, what my dad said, what he was told and, and others, you know, he's not the only one who ever said this, that, um, during some cataclysm on the surface of the earth, that surface humans um, were brought down there for their safety and continued to be down there. And that could be the so-called, you know, civilization that, that my dad was referring to and in, in what he told and what others who have encountered subterranean civilizations through the years, that, that could be who and what they're encountering. So again, I say there could be a bit of truth to this whole thing, you know, about the Tuata and, and literally um, being underground. But again, it's all circumstantial. It's it's all hypothetical, except for the stories of people who claim they've encountered it. Um, the, the thing about the Tuata with me is that in, in my research, I'm finishing a book right now, which is the fifth in my secret mission series, okay? And I've written about a dozen um, nonfiction books since, uh, 2010, 2011, or no, I'm sorry, 2008 with my Disneyland book, but the first empire of the will book was 2011. And here's, what's interesting. Um, you know, I've written a book about esoteric Disneyland. I've written the empire of the wheel books that have to do with what I think was a cult ritual murder and all. And, and it involves secret service agents. It, it involves weird love crap, just weird stuff. The empire of the wheel investigation, the Secret missions books involve historical figures and, um, uh, you know, uh, exploration agendas they might have had that were, you know, classified. And, um, and, and, and you know, all the different books I've written on what appears to be different subjects, although, you know, they do have some connections. And what's interesting to me is um, even when I'm not expecting to find it, somewhere along the way, some connection to the Tuatha Dita Dan and their presence pops up in my research. It's, it's uncanny. They seem to be there. And what do I mean by that? I mean, landmarks, okay. in the terrain, um, I, you know, the symbology involved in certain historical pursuits of people. And what does that suggest to me? It suggests to me that a couple of things, either, these Tuata actually exist and they have been a direct influence on human civilization long enough to just, you know, their influence appears everywhere and maybe not even as such, you know, it's just, it's been around so long that, you know, it's just there or, or somebody, a very human group has been for at least I want to say 150 years, some group has been functioning and influencing society and civilization uh, using the um, ideals and symbology of the Tuatha Dé Danann, um, and in a way that gives the impression that they're real, that they're still with us, and such. So it, it's it's either. The more fantastical possibility that it really is this this group of people from another world, another dimension, possibly, um, or it's a very you know secretive but influential human group for about a century and a half that is wanting to give the impression of being 
the Tuata or affiliated with them, which I find almost as intriguing as the possibility that it's the real Tuata, you know, that, that somebody would do this. Just we're talking, you know, it, I, I see the evidence for this over the course of 150 years in my research. And, I, and I'm finishing a book right now in which I discuss this very thing. You know, why do they show up in, constantly in all this research that I'm doing? Um, in the stuff that I'm looking at. And in this book, I'm pointing out more connections and, and it's going to take a subsequent book for me to really um, explore the question, why, what, what's up with these you know, beings, these people. And, and that's the thing where Shimmering Light, my dad's story is concerned. His story that he tells completely resonates with this idea and this lore of the Tuatha Dé Danann, and yet there's an actual historical context involving the Air Force and their very well-known historical um, development of MK Ultra that would explain, um, in a very practical sense, um, why my dad told the story he told and why he appeared to believe it. Okay, and yet. The irony is I see evidence for the Tuita de Danan or someone using the face of the Tuita de Danan, very present, you know, very in reality. What does that suggest? Well, um, one thing is um, there was a guy, uh, his name's Gottlieb. He was one of the um, MK Ultra scientists, and he was very much into um, – ancient lore and arcane science and, and history and occultic related things. And so if anybody uh, working with MK Ultra uh, during that time that my dad would have been exposed to it, if anyone in that structure knew about the Tuatha Dé and it was Gottlieb. So the, that leads us then to the possibility that uh, this narrative similar to the Tuatha Dé and this underground civilization and the stuff my dad said was true, uh, could have been fabricated to um, be used as a false narrative because it would have been so unbelievable that once the person starts talking, they're talking about the false narrative. But that doesn't mean the two aren't real, and Gottlieb would have known that. So that, there's, there's an irony there. He would be using something that he understood as real and historical in a way to suppress an, an actual narrative even though he knew or believed or understood it as being real, it would have been so unbelievable to the average person that it would work as a false narrative. And there's your irony that something that might be true could have been used as a false narrative because of its very nature. Um, it, it's, it's very complex that, that whole thing that, um, you know, happened with my dad and, and surrounding it. Um, it, it's, it's very complex. And in the end, uh, like I say in the book, I I can't honestly say that there's nothing to the two and a and thing because I see too much evidence for it, whatever it really is, um, in my research. Yeah, I think that anyone that picks up the book and uh, reads what you uh, have included in regards to this civilization in there is going to get blown away. And I mean, it definitely piqued my interest to uh, uh, do a little more research into that. One thing that I wanted to ask is. Why aren't the the Soviets in this list? I know you explained it in the book, but I, I wanted to to get you to answer that question because when I was doing my own research for this interview, I found that in 1948, uh, this was a year after Roswell, there was an operation called 
Project Sign. And mm-hmm. Project Sign uh, looks like it was uh, an attempt to find out if these UFO crafts that people were reporting were actually Soviet secret weapons. However, in right. your book, early on, you say that there is no way that this could have been a Soviet project. Uh, how did you arrive to that conclusion? Through the context of what was going on with U.S. history and the local area, too, uh, what was going on in the New Mexico desert with the secret projects and stuff. If I were to go back and revise that to include the Russians, I would include the Russians in that category where I'm talking about um, Nazi tech from a group that's neither our Operation Paperclip Nazis nor the Russians Nazis. Because remember... Russians got Nazis too, but it all comes back to the German technology, even the category where I think it might've been our first attempt at manned space flight. This all happened because of the Germans. And, um, I like to tell people that that doesn't mean that I don't believe in extraterrestrials. I think extraterrestrials exist and I think they've come to this planet and they continue to come to this planet. I have no problem with that. I just don't think this particular thing is that I think there's too much uh, historical evidence within this context I laid out to point to, you know, something that was done from a source here on Earth. If for the people that might think that this sounds a bit out there, I wanted to present this point. Obviously, Germany, Nazi Germany, was working on a lot of uh, secret projects, and we're going to get into some of them here in a moment. When I was uh, preparing for this interview, I came across this name, and I don't know if it rings a, a bell, Walter. Mm-hmm. Hans Kamler. Mm-hmm. Hans Kamler. He was a senior group leader. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that German title uh, of the SS. And he was a civil engineer who worked in top secret weapons programs. Now, what's interesting about this particular man is that he disappeared in May 1945 in the final days of the war. And nobody has seen him since. A lot of people think that this guy ran off with uh, some loyal to him and took a lot of the information for some of these top secret weapons and top secret programs. Yeah, Kamler's an interesting guy because I think he's one of them. There was one or two Nazis who um, there. there's two or three different reports of their death at different times in different places and no bodies ever found. So clearly, you know, it was some type of cover, you know, cause, cause they were still alive and, um, you know, where they ended up for the longest time, the whole Nazis in South America thing, mm-hmm. we knew God found Nazis in South America. We know for a fact that, you know, Nazis that, you know, fled Germany before the war stopped everything. Um, we knew there were Nazis there. We know that, that this is a fact, but, um, you know, the idea that Hitler was down there, the idea that some of these other, you know, more fantastical things, you know, with technology and stuff happening down there was pretty much in the realm of, okay, that might be a fantasy or exaggeration. But as we've seen in recent years, um, there's been some really good work and some FBI documents that indicate that, well, maybe Adolf Hitler, you know, did survive the war and lived into the, you know, the 1960s. There, there's some actual respectable evidence for that now. So it makes you wonder, okay, to what extent was there some type of Nazi organization? Now, I, I, what it would look like would be some type of corporate kind of entity. It look it look more like probably some type of aerospace engineering firm as far as its operations. Um, so you know that's what you you would be looking for, and that would allow them to develop things and um, 
you know, just continue with the kinds of things that they were working on during the war. Um, I would say that uh, it probably probably would have been um, into the 1970s before you saw anything close to like what is claimed regarding the Hanabu, which allegedly was being developed during the war and all that. Because if, if especially if we look at Kecksburg, Kecksburg happens in 1965. You look at the details of that, um, you know, if, if, if that was a product of the, the Glocka technology, it, it was, it was nowhere near as advanced as what is claimed for the Hanabu. So to answer your question, going around the barn the long way, um, <laughs> I don't think the Nazis had any kind of flying saucer before or during the war. And uh, certainly um, anything using the bell in flight, I would argue uh, it would have been in the early stages, you know, still in the mid sixties when Kecksburg happened. So we kind of have a little bit of legs to stand on as we get into this next point, which is that what crashed at Roswell could have been post-war Nazi tech. You mentioned earlier Philip Corso, whose book uh, became very popular uh, the day after Roswell. However, in your own book, Shimmering Light, you tell us that, unfortunately, his book is not really reliable. Um, before we go there, let's talk about some of the stuff that was recovered, according to uh, Philip Corso, from the Roswell crash. And that was, uh, I have the list here, uh, super hard metals, fiber optics. Kevlar, night vision, lasers and particle accelerators, transistors and integrated circuits, and uh, portable atomic power for air and spacecraft. Now, obviously, some of this stuff, uh, if not all of it, it's common in today's day and age. But back then, fiber optics, Kevlar, night vision, lasers, I mean, this stuff was like uh, straight out of science fiction. But you quote another author, Joseph uh, P. Farrell. In his book, Roswell and the Reich. And mm -hmm. apparently the Germans already had this stuff, or at least they were working on it and getting really close to uh, having it be functional. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. Um, Roswell and the Reich, probably the most inconvenient book um, written about Roswell. And um, uh, what I have found, which totally befuddles me, it, it is... <laughs> how do you put it with some people? It's like the most hated book by people who actually have never read it. They admit mm. to me they because just what you said. Um, now this is in, this is in the history. You can look this up yourself, but if you're looking for a quick go-to reference, go to Joseph Farrell's book, Roswell and the Reich, because he pulls it all together and presents it for you. Yes. The, all the things that Corso lists, um, that were allegedly, you know, retrieved at Roswell. Uh, these are things that Nazi Germany, their science and tech guys, were known to be working on and making strides in, or these are things which are the logical result of things that it's proven that they were working on. Okay? You know, we're talking about taking technologies that, you know, might be... Uh, as big as a bread box and they bring it down to the size of a human finger. So they were working on miniaturization and they, they were creating transistors and they were doing all manner of things. And it's inconvenient 
to the ET hypothesis for Roswell because the fact that, you know, you can point to it and, and they were developing it. And the fact that, again, nothing that, you know, was said to have been retrieved from Roswell could not have been some, you know, level of development of these things that Nazi Germany was working on. Now, I point out, too, about Corso, uh, something that Farrell and others have pointed out, is that Corso might have been playing, you know, a, a kind of a, not a shell game, but a game of impressions a little bit. And he might have been kind of playing along and instructed to do so, because this book, I think, was not long before or after the Air Force Roswell report, right? Which right. was saying, found thing so you know he he might have been um playing some type of intel disinfo game air force comes out and says it's balloons corso's book comes out and says it's not the truth is somewhere in between joseph farrell in his book roswell and the reich does a very good job in taking all the things that corso points out and the way he presents it it makes a lot of sense that it was a much more earthbound explanation because of this technology what I find interesting is that, again, I'm sure that a lot of this stuff may sound pretty out there, but even looking at the Horton brothers, uh, Walter and Raymar Horton, mm -hmm. I've always been fascinated with their work, especially their flying wing design, which mm -hmm. I find eerily similar to the B-2 bomber that the U.S. Uh, developed decades later. But just the fact that they could create these type of craft in an era where, you know, it almost seems outlandish, it, it really blows my mind. And then you add to that the reports that the infamous the bell, right, the, the Glock. There's definitely a lot of uh, information out there that would point anyone in the direction that Germany was definitely way, way ahead of everybody else. So I wanted to ask you, in your mind... And I know that there's like there's there's a couple of uh, great <laughs> movies called Iron Sky out there, but yeah. how <laughs> how far do you think the Nazis were from reaching space? Like five years, ten years, more or less? Well, looking at the known context of how soon we started going there, think about it. In the early '60s, we didn't get to the moon until '60, you know, the late '60s. But you know, we were putting we and the Russians were putting people in space in the the early '60s. Um, and that was after, you know, the war. So the, the war kind of, um, you know, slowed things down. Wow. I would say if the war hadn't happened, you would have seen Nazi Germany putting people in space, um, uh, you know, and, and probably the United States shortly after that, uh, by the early fifties, like I said, they were working towards that. Um, some of them, and, uh, they certainly wanted to do that. We got that's kind of the, you know, one of the points is we got the, those Nazi scientists who would have made that happen for Germany had the war not happened and had we not got them for paper clips. So basically it was those guys who were working to make that happen. Now, how close they actually got, um, here's the problem with the Hanabu thing. Um, unfortunately it's a myth, uh, uh -huh. thing. When you, when you look close enough at it, you find that it's all a post-war myth. The closest that they could have gotten to anything like the Hanabu was the technology of whatever Daglaka actually was at the point of development that they reached, you know, during the war and by the end of the war. Um, I, I do not think 
that they ever got anywhere near a saucer. Um, I don't believe the story that they captured an ET saucer before the war or during the war. That's all part of post-war neo-Nazi, Nazi survival myth. It can be traced back to guys like um, Ernst Zundel, if you look him up, and a couple of uh, post-war articles, very questionable articles, in Italian newspapers, uh, I believe in the 50s. But De Glocka was very likely a real thing that they were developing and, and had developed to a certain point. And I think that, okay, whatever De Glocka actually was developed to by the end of the war, I definitely think the United States continued the development of that technology with our paperclip Germans. And I think that, for example, by the time you get to 1965, I think the Kecksburg UFO might be evidence of how far we had developed this Nazi Bell de Glocka technology. Um, Now, there is a suspicion that some type of smaller version of this technology of de Glocka might have been incorporated um, in our space program because, you know, famously now when you look at the films of Apollo 11 and the Apollo, you know, lunar modules lifting off from the moon, it's it, it, it it's kind of weird looking. It doesn't have that, um, you know, the, what looks like a, a rocket kind of launch. Now, we know there's one-sixth the gravity of Earth, so it, it's not going to have the same, it's not going to have to have the same thrust to get into orbit of the moon. But it's just the way, if you look at that footage, it's the way the LEM just kind of pops up at, at this weird steady, you know, and, and yet you don't see really kind of what would look like a rocket thrust. It looks like there's something there that uh, uh, projects it up that might be more in the realm of, um, and I don't like to use this term because it's loaded, but it would be more in the realm of some type of gravity manipulation than some type of rocket thrust technology, right? And mm-hmm. and this possibly was a product of the the Deglaca technology, you know, and knowledge of that that we had captured. And look, that that took us to the late '60s to develop it even that far, just to pop that lunar module with two guys inside, you know, backed up in the orbit of the moon. Now, uh, God knows what applications by the time you know we get into the 1990s when we learn that the B two bomber actually did have. And a, like an electrogravitic anti-gravity type of technology, so to speak, um, incorporated into lift assist, I think is how they call it, in the B2, and that's known. So is that a side product of uh, de Glocka research? It's very possible. But, um, you know, that that addresses what was going on with anti-gravity research, so to speak, because, as you know, uh, this was something that was being discussed very publicly in engineering circles and aerospace circles until around 1960. And then apparently a lid was clamped down on it and there was never any more talk publicly um, about any kind of uh, chasing development of anti-gravity. And yet, since 1960, we've increasingly seen these strange craft that, you know, appear to use such technology. So the question is, did they have a breakthrough in the late 50s around 1960 that made this very viable? And then, boom, the lid of secrecy was put down over it. And, you know, when you consider that in light of what I just said about how far did they take the Bell technology with Kecksburg and Apollo and all that, did the Bell, did De Glocka 
captured the Glocka information and post-war development lead to this clampdown on any discussion of pursuit of anti-gravity. It, it's intriguing. You know, you have to wonder. It's really interesting because I, I'm going to have to go back and watch the, that, uh, the footage from, from the moon landing because now that you mentioned it, yeah, it is, it is kind of weird how it just lifts off. And, you know, obviously there's plenty of speculation whether, you know, if it was faked or not uh, what we're seeing. Um, nonetheless, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's worth definitely uh, taking a second look. And uh, like I said, your book just kind of reminded me of uh, what, what a strange world that we live in. And one should not be so quick to dismiss things. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, I, I feel like we hear things over and over again to the point where we almost take them as fact. And um, it does a huge disservice in the quest for truth uh, in the long run. Now, mm -hmm. when talking about the, the Nazi bell, you also present this, the, the breakaway civilization option. And um, you talk about a group that I was introduced to in uh, the first book I read from you, uh, Origin, the 19th century emergence of the 20th century breakaway civilization. And that's a, a mysterious group called NIMSA. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell me a, a little bit about why that is a possibility in the Roswell crash and how does the, the bell fit into all of this? Ah, yes. NIMSA. Now NIMSA would fit into that category that uh, we've been talking about that I described in my book of some unknown source of German developed technology that, you know, we talked about, okay, it would be an organization, not Russia, not, you know, any known country or anything, but just this unknown organization could be some type of group of, you know, former Nazis and NIMSA would be that, you know, that in that category. Um, all we know um, on record about NIMSA is from one source, a guy named Charles Delshaw, who was also the source um, of, the Sonora Aero Club, this curious and mysterious group of German immigrants in the United States, specifically in California, in the 1850s, the decade before our civil war here in the States. And um, they allegedly, according to Delshaw, were experimenting with the advanced technologies of the day, uh, which included um, chemistry and turbines and such. And allegedly, according to Del Shell, they uh, were building flying machines, which used this mysterious fuel called SUPA, which uh, when heat was applied and, and spinning elements, which I, you know, I think is a, a, a turbine, a, a primitive turbine, um, it would produce this other mysterious element called NB gas. And it wasn't like helium in a, in a dirigible. The gas itself um, had properties that it would result essentially in anti-gravity. Um, if you're familiar with the movie, if you're not, check it out. First Man in the Moon, H.G. Wells, it's a fictional account, but it, it takes place in the 1890s. And there's this element called cabarite. And cabarite is something that like he paints on the, 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 the surface of the, uh, the craft. And it results in anti-gravity. Okay, so this stuff, this NB gas of the 1850s was kind of like that. H.G. Wells was cabarite. So um, according to Delshaw, they're doing this for a few years, and they're doing this under the sponsorship of this German organization headquartered in Germany, according to uh, Delshaw, 
and um, they kind of uh, sponsor and, and, and maybe pay for the resources. And there's this, this some some type of agreement between the Sonora Aero Club in Sonora, California, and this mysterious group NIMSA that they'll develop stuff for NIMSA. Now, um, Del Shell doesn't say much about what NIMSA is or about other than there's this semi-military organization that's headquartered in Germany. And at one point, Del Shell tells us that NIMSA sent a representative who uh, told the group, the Sonora Aero Club, that they wanted them to build these flying machines for a military application. And the Sonora Aero Club guys and its leader did not want to do that. Uh, so there was a little difference of opinion. There's a little tension there. Um, the Sonora Aero Club Germans did not like the NIMSA Germans and such. Um, shortly after that, we are told by Delshow that the leader of the Sonora Aero Club is, is accidentally killed in a flight accident where there's a fire. And, uh, you know, we're not told where he's buried or anything. So it, 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 we're told that the group, the Sonora Aero Club, sometime, this is probably around 1858 or whatever, disbands. And, you know, nothing ever comes of it, we're told. Del Shaw himself um, uh, moves to Texas, spends the rest of his life there. And he starts writing about the Sonora Aero Club between 1896 and 1923 when he passes away. And uh, along with writing about this Sonora Aero Club and this NIMSA group, he starts producing these elaborate um, uh, picture books showing schematics of the flying machines that were built and allegedly flown and others that were designed that they didn't get around to testing. And Del Shao writes these journals and, and he claims that this was all real. It really happened. And uh, he dies in 1923 and his books are in an attic. They get thrown out. And by 1971, they're found in a junk shop by a man named Pete Navarro. And in all those intervening years, 1923 to 1971, these books are unknown. Nobody knows who Charles Delshaw was. You know, he's, you know, no one knows who he was. He's unknown. But what's interesting, in his books, um, there are drawings of the propulsion system and, and, and the, you know, the schematics of the workings of these flying machines of the 1850s. And there is, shockingly, a drawing of what is essentially the Nazi bell. However, we're told the Nazi bell wasn't being developed by Germany until, you know, uh, going into the late 1930s and through the war years. Okay. But here is essentially the bell and how it works in a book that was uh, done at least before 1923, a couple of decades before we're told the Nazis were doing the bell. And it's all connected. You know, Delshaw himself was a, was a German immigrant who had come to the States um, working for NIMSA to report on the Sonora Aero Club. So you've got all these Germans, and in between the 1850s and what Delshaw was saying, you know, really happened in the 1850s, and the Nazi bell years, what do you have? You have the airship mystery of the 1890s, which, in my opinion, is um, kind of a more advanced development of what Delshaw was talking about these guys were doing in the 1850s. So you have this uh, historical thread, you know, that seems to back up, in a way, the stories of Charles Delshaw. So the problem with Delshaw people have is is he often gets uh, written off and dismissed as what's called an outsider artist, that he, he made all this up. 
The problem there is the issue of the bell. His stuff was unknown until 1971, as far as the public was concerned. So where did the Nazis get the idea for the bell? If they really did do this. So this would seem to support that idea. So I looked into it. And when I was looking at, you know, how could we get from the, 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 the Sonora Aero Club of German immigrants uh, working for this mysterious, you know, German NIMSA group, how could we get from there to uh, the Nazi bell, you know, in the Nazi war machine of World War II? And what I found was a thread of industrialists who were associated with, you know, the pursuit of exotic technology and information through the 19th century into the early 20th century. And uh, they, they would have been the threads um, leading to the um, known societies, scientific societies and other societies that would have been involved, their members would have been involved with the development of this Nazi bell. And I argue that um, the NIMSA of Delshell was actually a real organization, a private organization, but a real organization nonetheless that was dedicated to German unification, which didn't happen until several years after, you know, what Delshell was talking about in the 1850s. And um, I think that NIMSA, whatever they were as a corporate body and their knowledge, their technological knowledge and influence, I think would have been incorporated into the um, Nazi science and technical war machine. And uh, today you would find them in what Joseph Farrell calls, for example, the Nazi international, whatever this post-war thing that these Nazis that escaped after the war, uh, whatever they founded and formed, uh, this is where you would find, um, you know, NIMSA today. And they would constitute what is um, commonly referred to as a breakaway civilization. Now, I've quit using that phrase since writing my book. I've quit using the phrase breakaway civilization. I've altered it because the word civilization implies something much bigger and more complex than I think these groups are. So I refer to them now as breakaway groups, breakaway society, you know, like a, more of a corporate and, and technological, uh, I'm going to say real society. I don't mean that. More like, you know, if the Ananerby uh, became corporate and technical, if um, the Thule Society, right? Right. Something like okay. And so instead of an, an actual full-on civilization. Now, um, in the course of all this, trying to identify, well, who, who would and what would NIMSA have been, I offered a translation. I think the word NIMSA, N-Y-M-Z-A, that Delshell uses repeatedly, I think that's an acronym because it's always in capital letters. And, and I try to, it's, it's a speculative hypothesis. I like to admit that. Um, Adel Schaub tells us it was a German organization, so I argue if it's an acronym, NIMSA, that it's an acronym of German words. And of course, I offer that translation, which don't ask me to do it off the top of my head because <laughs> I, I get it wrong every time I'm reading it off the page. But, um, it, it, you know, I, I think that. I think that there's enough reason to think that Delshaw was telling the truth as much as there is to, to write him off. Again, a lot of this stuff I know can sound really out there. I highly recommend your book, uh, Origin. It puts some major pieces of the puzzle together. We got a couple of more possibilities here. If things sounded weird, I mean, this is where we really go up a few notches. Yeah. It involves a figure that has fascinated me since I first uh, came across uh, uh, his story, and that is uh, Jack Parsons. He was an interesting guy. 
Jack Parsons. Uh, for the people that uh, are not familiar, he was a, a rocket scientist, uh, developed solid-state rocket fuel technology uh, that eventually got us to the moon. And I know that uh, a couple of years back, or a few years back, um, there was a TV series made after the uh, life of Jack Parsons. Uh, so <laughs> maybe there are some people that are familiar with him. How does Jack Parsons fit into Roswell? Because that, that was the one thing that I was surprised to come across his name in the pages of your book. The story, I think a lot of people in your audience probably know that Jack Parsons, as well as being a scientific genius um, in, in rocket uh, propulsion, rocket technology engineering, he was also an avid Uh, occultist and particularly with um, high magic and uh, the story is that he had done a working out in the desert in 46 late 46 or early 47 and he according to the story believed that that working um, opened up a hole uh, to another dimension kind of pierced the veil or, or, or lifted the veil and what crashed in Roswell had come from the other side. He apparently believed this and told, you know, U.S. military agents that uh, that was the case. Now, you can get more details as to where this comes from in Nick Redfern's book, Final Events. It's my favorite book by him. It's just a fascinating book. And, uh, you know, this, this is the story. This is what uh, Parsons believed, explained Roswell. Well, if you're talking about opening up the veil and, and beings from another dimension coming, that could be from the same dimension, for example, that the, the aforementioned and discussed to it, Adina Nam came from. That's where we get into this ultra terrestrials thing. And also the ultra terrestrials, you know, I think John Keel was the first to really, um, he and Ivan Sanderson, I think, were the first ones to really coin the term ultra-terrestrials as a possibility. But uh, Parsons, very interesting guy. He, he was a correspondent and kind of a protege of Aleister Crowley. Um, he was, uh, again, an avid occultist uh, right there in Pasadena. He was one of the founders of what is known as the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. They did um, a lot of their testing and, and things at th that park right there that's at the, the Devil's Canyon Reservoir and Dam, that area where mm -hmm. there's, you know, all sorts of strange things been reported there um, over the years. And, and, and this, this was Parsons. He, he, he was a guy with kind of like movie star good looks, very much a child, uh, you know, a product of his era, and yet, you know, was also ahead of his time with his thinking. And uh, he unfortunately, uh, we we're told it was an accident, a chemical accident uh, in his garage. And uh, there was an explosion. It, it dismembered him. And, um, you know, he died as a result of that. And that was, oh, gosh, the early 50s. But, uh, yeah, he believed that his ritual had opened up a dimensional portal. And what crashed at Roswell was intelligent beings from that other dimension. It was interesting to see him come up and it made me want to, yeah, pick up that uh, book by Nick Redfern because uh, it sounds like he, he went pretty, pretty deep into that avenue of Jack Parsons and how he fits into this uh, Roswell mystery. Of course, uh, you also uh, mentioned L. Ron Hubbard, who was right there with Jack Parsons, it seems, for, for a good amount of years before they had a, a bit of a falling out. Um, uh -huh. 
Now, we have covered the four main possibilities uh, that you put forth in your book. When you reached the conclusion of this book, at least I was a bit just, uh, you know, left wondering, you know, what it could be. However, there was a, a key statement that your father made to you that kind of excludes, I think, at least two of these four. And that's that whatever crash, they were not considered a threat. They were definitely not any type of hostile government or civilization. What do you think now that you've had, you know, obviously you wrote this book and you've had time to think about this stuff. What do you think happened at Roswell? Personally, I um, lean toward that it was the first attempt by the United States at manned spaceflight. That's the one that uh, makes the most sense to me for, 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 you know, the detailed reasons we've been talking about tonight. I'm personally, at this moment in time, uh, convinced um, to the extent that I can be based upon what I lay out, that that's what was going on, that that's what Roswell was. I think that what happened with my dad was in the late 50s, because of his specialty, he was involved in uh, working at some type of deeply classified Air Force space program related facility. Remember, this was 10 years into the Cold War, 11 or whatever years into the Cold War, that was very classified. You see that during the 1950s, when the CIA was developing MK Ultra, they brought the military in on it, the Army, the Navy, and this Air Force, this very young Air Force, to consider what could the military application be and uh, how this could be used. And the Army, yeah, okay, whatever. The Navy was like, eh, yeah, this is interesting. But the Air Force, it's known, it's documented, you know, history, the Air Force was really turned on by MKUltra. This is in the 50s. And it's known that whereas the Navy and the Army just kind of, you know, like, yeah, okay, whatever, the Air Force went off and started developing in their aerospace medicine psychiatric division area. They started developing MKUltra for their own application. And um, in 1973, when the CIA had to come clean about MK Ultra, well, the Air Force wasn't there. The Air Force didn't have to um, admit anything that they had been doing with MK Ultra. So it's my suspicion that when my dad and other guys went to work at such a classified installation, part of the security agreement was hey, there's this new technology. You're going to work here, but we're going to use hypnosis to then suppress your memory of having done your work here, and that'll help you keep from talking about it. And, and back then, remember, this was something that the Air Force MK Ultra was like a new toy. This would have been something that would have been useful for secrecy, you know, for operational security. So guys like my dad, you know, they were patriotic Americans. They were in the Air Force. They said, yeah, sure, no problem, whatever, you know. So they go, they do their work, and then as they agreed to, the Air Force psychiatrists, you know, apply the MK Ultra through the hypnosis, and um, they lay in this false narrative. And my dad and the other guys, you know, for example, in their consciousness, in their minds, in their memories, and then off they go to the rest of their duties. Um, of course, as we know, there naturally were likely side effects, and I talk about that, you know, in the book. And um, here's how it would have worked as the years passed by. And the hypnotic lock weakened, what would come up first to the surface would be the false narrative. 
So there it's laid in to uh, my dad's memory and to his psyche with hypnosis. And then the hypnotic lock is placed over it. And as that lock weakened, after he gets out of the Air Force and he's not working for them anymore, as it weakens over the years and the decades, and it starts coming to the surface, what he's going to remember and talk about is the false narrative. And he's going to believe that this is what really happened. And it would be an additional number of decades before the false narrative would break down and he would actually remember what he was really doing. But by then, he would probably have passed on of old age. So this is what I suspect and this is what I propose in the book happened with my dad and why he told that story. Now, why do I think there's something to this? Because by the time I got into the Air Force, I was told in the late 90s that... uh, my superior uh, officer in the the world I worked in, that um, they indeed had used hypnosis on my dad relative to what had happened to him in in the late 50s. And what I was told was, is that the, the lock, the hypnotic lock was keyed to the phases of the moon. So uh, how it worked was every month of his life, he looked to the sky at night and the first night he saw the full moon, the hypnotic lock would be reactivated in his subconscious and he would then, you know, oh, go on for the next month, not wow. even thinking about it. As the years progressed and he's got older and he wasn't in the Air Force for them to refresh it, what would start coming to the surface was the false narrative. And this, I, I hypothesize, was the story he was telling me. And then as the years went on, this is what he would remember. Well, you know, when he passed away, he was not quite 72 and he was still telling this story. So he clearly, if I'm right about my suggestion, my hypothesis, this is what he was still believing. And if it would have taken another two or three decades to break down, he wouldn't have been alive. You know, he would have passed away by then anyway. Um, now, here's what's interesting about this. I'm told in the 90s that a hypnotic lock was put on him and it was keyed to the phases of the moon. And then almost 20 years later, when I'm researching and digging in and doing this book, and I learned more and more about MKUltra, I learned that one of the things that they could never do was uh, find a way to reactivate the hypnosis in an automatic way. And in the history books we read about MKUltra, they weren't able to accomplish that. And yet, I'm told in the late 90s that they had connected it to the moon. So the question is, in my mind then, I'm like, oh my gosh, was it the Air Force program of MKUltra, their own MKUltra program, did they solve the problem of the automatic hypnotic reset? In other words, was it an Air Force psychiatrist working with MKUltra that realized, hey, wait a minute, let's hook this to the phases of the moon because everybody sees the moon. You know, he's going to see these guys are going to see the moon, you know, every night. Let's just try that. And was that the breakthrough? And the reason we didn't hear about it was because it was the Air Force MKUltra program that solved that problem. What the Air Force did with MKUltra is still a secret to us, okay? In 1973, the Church Committee, the CIA, had to come clean on it, and that's how we know what we know about MKUltra. But the Air Force has never been made to come clean about what they did with MKUltra in the 50s. And what I was told in the 90s, when I was in the Air Force, and my research is why I think that I'm onto something if if my hypothesis isn't exactly correct, I think I'm in the ballpark with what happened to my dad. 
that's where I'm at with that. That totally blows my mind. And yeah, you do get into the uh, subject of MK Ultra quite at length, actually, in your book. Uh, I definitely uh, recommend anybody that's interested in that as well. Uh, you do some excellent research into that. I got one last question, Walter. I'm just wondering if you would be able to answer it. There is a footnote in page uh, 285 in your book, and uh, you talk quite often about a Colonel Lundy. And this particular footnote caught my attention because you said that uh, this uh, colonel taught you uh, certain skills in the occult sciences that you use in your work. I don't imagine you can tell me a little bit about that. Well, first of all, Colonel Lundy, of course, and I think I say this in the book, is not his real name. Right. Yeah, I was taught before uh, I even started working for the FBI. This gentleman was my mentor. Um, through most of my adult life and throughout my career for Uncle Sam. And um, he, uh, uh, he started teaching me um, <laughs> uh, very, some very interesting things. Necromancy was one of them. And um, also uh, things that we would call psychic communication and, and things that fall within the realm of remote viewing, for example. And, uh, these are the way he described to me, these are, are natural skills that are there that, um, you know, can be developed. And I personally, my impression is, and my belief is, is that everybody has them, but you know, if you, you got to be taught how to develop them. And of course they, it's like a muscle that strengthens through using it. Right. Yeah. And so the, these are the things he encouraged. He taught me some methods and, um, how I use this is um, I never, what I present is never uh, something that relies upon those kinds of things. What I will use that for is to possibly point to leads. If I'm led to looking at something through these exotic uh, means, so to speak, before I will discuss what I find or, or what threads I pull, you know, before I'll discuss it or present it in a book, I will make sure that I have some type of uh, literary, academic, or historical um, material source that will back it up. So if, if I come to some curiosity or some thread or some possibility merely through this woo-woo type stuff um, and, and there's nothing else I find to back it up or support it, I will not present it as something that was a result of, of practical research. Now, I might be willing to bring it up in a, in a, uh, a discussion of hypothetical possibilities. Um, clearly labeled as speculation, but um, never, never will I. I'm not one of those researchers that says, um, you know, my astral guide from the planet Xenon tells me blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I personally, I think that's BS when I hear that kind of stuff, but um, I don't think psychic stuff and these weird things is BS, are BS, but um, uh, nice grammar there, Walter. Uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I don't think it's right to present something as a product of research that is a product of that. You follow me? I, yeah. I try, whereas I respect these things. And yeah, I've been taught things and I've worked on developing them. Um, my research is not 
founded upon that. The most that ever does is it gives me an intuitive idea for a lead to follow. But I always personally insist that before, again, as I said, um, before it's included as a product of my research, it's got to be backed up by history or, or something I can point to, you know, material that's, that's a document or, you know, some type of historical fact, that kind of thing. So um, it's useful stuff. And it very much leads to some very interesting, strange experiences. For instance, in my Empire of the Wheel books, um, that was a seven-year period of my life. But I got to tell you, uh, I'll be honest, you know, flat out honest about this. There were paranormal, what appeared to be paranormal things happening. There was all any manner of strange occurrences going on during the seven years that I was investigating and writing the Empire of the Wheel books. Um, that I do not talk about in those books because those books are not about me and my weird experience. Those books are about the research I did and what I can back up with, you know, personal investigation and places and interviews and documented history. But what came with digging into the things I was digging into was some high strangeness and some very strange phenomena uh, that, um, I don't know if that came to me because I'm open to the things I was taught to use or, or what. It, it just gets into some strange things. But uh, I hope that answered the question sufficiently. It's, it's, it's kind of a weird aspect of my personal experience. So I'm not always sure if I uh, explain it clearly. I think that was a, a great answer. And like I said, uh, uh, the beginning of the show, this book reminded me just uh, how strange the world can be yeah. shimmering light is the title of the book walter where can people get a copy and also uh check out some of your other books well my books are print on demand only at lulu.com l-u-l-u.com i'm a publisher i've published other authors i've been a publisher for 19 years now so i'm a, I'm a real publisher not a vanity press guy but uh, i don't sell my books on amazon don't look for them there because amazon is not really good for small press publishers like myself so lulu.com l-u-l-u.com put my name in the search box and it, it'll it'll all come up you can find it there um, and, uh, you know, it takes a few days to get the books, but they're very good quality and it's worth the wait, I think. Walter, what can I say? This has been, uh, just, uh, quite the interview, like, just like the book, it did not disappoint. You're honestly in, on my list of favorite authors. Uh, like I said, we're three for three so far. And, uh, I look forward to, uh, the next book, uh, that I pick up of yours. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Well, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I, I enjoyed talking with you again, and I look forward to doing this again. So thanks again for having me. That was Walter Bosley, author of the book Shimmering Light. This was a, a really fascinating interview. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Don't forget to grab a copy of his book at lulu.com. That's L-U-L-U.com. We'll put a link down uh, in the description. Definitely check out some of his other books. Uh, he, he's one of my favorite researchers, like I said. Uh, one of my favorite authors, I, and I highly recommend it to you guys. Uh, definitely go check it out. That being said, I want to thank everyone that tuned in, everybody that listened in. If you're catching this as a podcast on YouTube or iTunes or one of the many other services that you can find us in, 
I want to thank you so much for doing so. Drop us a line, drop us a comment, drop us a like, and uh, don't forget to subscribe and keep up with all the latest in the west of the Rockies world. Don't forget to check out the website. That's WOTRradio.com. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube. That's YouTube.com forward slash WOTRradio. Go like the Facebook page. That's Facebook.com forward slash West of the Rockies. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at WOTRradio. If you're listening to this on YouTube, uh, leave us a comment. Let me know what you think. I mean, we cover a lot of ground and uh, definitely we're left with a lot to think about. All right, guys, take care, be safe, God bless, don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. Until then, bye-bye. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.